good evening. It's glad to see everybody. Uh, missed you uh, the past couple of weeks. I, we had a really good Ash Wednesday service here last Wednesday at our church. That's a relatively new observance for us, but I think it, it you know, kind of ushers in that series, uh, the season of Lent and preparation for Easter, and then uh, had a videotape the week before, and so we just got back from uh, Israel trip. So I do want to warn you, though, that jet lag is definitely real. And uh, so if you ask questions tonight and nobody, and you get no questions asked, that's because my wife has fallen asleep, <laughs> which uh, I'm kind of amazed that she doesn't anyway, uh, because I tell people, you know, we come in here on Wednesday night, it's right after dinner. I put more people to sleep than Ambien. Yeah, I mean, I've put so many people to sleep. Seriously, I'm really glad to be back with you. We are into the depths of the book of Revelation. So if you are a Revelation geek, starting with this lesson, we get really into the depth of it. So let me say a prayer and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together that we can study your word. I pray that it would increase our knowledge that would then seep into our heart, Lord, and increase our faith and our fervor to spread your word. I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice, for the hurts and the grief and anxiety, and we offer all those things up to you, and we trade that for your peace in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for our nation, and I pray for our world. I pray not, uh, Lord, that everything would be perfect. I simply pray that your will would be done, because you know what is good and you know what is best, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we always have questions in this class, and in this series in particular, we've had a lot of questions that need more depth. So there's scan code. If you want to scan that, it'll take you to a website, but each Friday, we'll be posting over at sowespeak.com some more detailed answers to some of your questions. Some of them just take a lot of time. They're great questions. So we'll do a podcast and post it at So We Speak every Friday that just has more depth and, and answering more questions. But we answer as many as we can, and if you'll text your questions to the number on the screen, those of you joining us online, I think it's also on the handout there online as well, but text your questions in and we will, uh, happy to answer as many as possible. So we are studying the apocalypse, the revelation, and apocalypse has a real negative connotation to us as in a bad revelation, like revelation of bad news. But the word itself is simply a revelation of something that you wouldn't know unless God told you, unless God revealed it to you. So the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse of John, this book is sometimes called. So let me remind you just a little bit of the format. So the first three chapters are letters that Jesus is dictating. He says to John, write these letters to the seven churches. And so these are words of Jesus that are not as often read as they should be. They're warnings, they're encouragement to the churches of his time, to the churches of all time. Then in chapter four, you see a vision of the heavenly throne room. It's a beautiful vision. And everything that happens in the book after chapter four comes from that throne room. It doesn't come from Caesar's throne. It doesn't come from Beijing or Moscow or Washington. I mean, part of the book of Revelation is saying that the ultimate power and what's driving all of history is God. And so everything emanates 
If you just read, read the book of Revelation and keep that in the back of your mind, like, wait a minute, all the seals come out of the throne room. The seven trumpets come out of the throne room. All the angels come out of the throne room. God is architecting history. And so you get this sense of God's sovereignty. And right after that, we pick up between there and chapter 19, what's typically called the tribulation. And these are a series of judgments that God is executing on the world. There are four major views of looking at this period of the tribulation, and they all, we've covered this before, but it's good to just uh, remind you. So the question is, when do these events happen that are being described? So a preterist says these events largely happened at the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And some other preterists will choose a slightly different time, but basically that it's substantially already happened. Second point of view is historicist. And it says, you know, actually those chapters between chapter four and 19 and all of these cataclysmic events are a roadmap of history from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And that will figure in this lesson. I'll tell you how historicists think, uh, when they think some of these things are happening. Futurists say, and this is, the more, this is the most commonly held and the one you're probably most familiar with. The futurist view says, all of these things that are called the tribulation are going to happen in a seven year period in the future. Hasn't happened yet. And it will be seven years and all these things will happen in that seven years. And then finally, a symbolic view uh, basically says all of these things will happen, but when is the wrong question? These things are telling you recurring things that have happened and will happen. The recurring judgment of God on evil, not a specific time in the history or a specific time in the future. So all of these are Orthodox Christian views. I'm not telling you that they're all necessarily right. I'm just saying they all believe that this is true. They're just struggling with, okay, now when are these things gonna happen? So those are the different views of the, of the uh, tribulation. So what have we done so far? So. The tribulation itself, this, this whole section is divided into three sets of seven judgments. There are seven seals that get opened, which we have talked about. And if you remember, the first four seals, you had a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse, and what were they? They were there to bring war, and famine and disease and death to the world. And almost every point of view says this is cataclysmic wars and famine happening in the earth. Okay, man's inhumanity to man, this is God's judgment. Then you have uh, various heavenly signs that happen, things that are happening on the earth. And you, these are like the plagues on Egypt. They're God's judgment on the world. And so you have the set of seven seals being opened. And then the seven angels are given trumpets and they blow the trumpets, which is also a sign of judgment. And so the seven trumpets, you have the grass is destroyed, some of the sea becomes blood, a third of the moon and the stars don't shine. If you remember, uh, this was our last lesson, we talked about how some of the futurists say this is literal, supernatural, things are gonna happen on the earth. Others would say this is literal, 
but it's gonna happen because of a nuclear war, that the world's gonna unleash nuclear weapons and all of these things are, okay, that's what happens if you have a worldwide nuclear war. Cataclysmic things happen. So there are different ways to understand it, but the idea is that God is bringing these things about. And so you have the seven seals, the seven trumpets. So where are we? I'd like to step back before we go any further and frame up where we are. So you have seven more judgments that are going to happen. So three sets of seven judgments. Now futurists typically believe these are linear events. And so I'm gonna show you a lot of futurist stuff in this lesson because I think that's what you're probably most familiar with. In other words, you get the seven seals and all those cataclysmic events. Then you get after that chronologically the seven trumpets and the cataclysmic events. And then after that, the seven bowls are poured out uh, on the earth and that happens. But you know, you got three sets of seven and that's just so symbolic, it's almost begging you to take that as a symbolic understanding. And so symbolic view says, this is the same story told three different times for emphasis. Remember we talked about in Hebrew, if you wanna emphasize something, you say it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is God judges the earth, God judges the earth, God judges the earth, just like he told you, the final, complete, full judgment of God. And that makes a little sense because at the end of each one of these sets of sevens, it kind of sounds like the world ends. So a symbolic view says, man, this story is telling you about God's judgment of the earth and that it's final and God's really the one judging and he's sovereign. Futurists would say, no, it's more chronological. So I wanna take you back, I wanna take a little digression because this is a good time to go back in time and talk about a prophecy in the book of Daniel that connects with where we are right now in the book of Revelation. So those of you that are fans of Daniel's 70 week prophecy, that's what I wanna talk to you about. So let's go back in time. And Daniel is a historical figure in 603, just give you a little chronology. This is a picture of Daniel chapter six where he's thrown into the lion's den. Probably remember that story. And so the first six chapters of Daniel are all kids' vacation Bible school stories. I mean, they are VBS stories, right? You've got Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and thrown into the furnace. And the first six chapters are these incidents. The rest of the book is prophecy. These are messages given to Daniel that Daniel probably doesn't even understand. He's just saying, the Lord says, this is what's gonna happen. I don't even understand what it's gonna be, right? So the tail end of it, however, is prophecy. So just remember when this is. So in 603 BC, Daniel, as a young man, and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken to Babylon. The Babylonians uh, wanted to make sure that they kept getting taxes paid to them. And so they took the young men and said, we're gonna take them to Babylon, we're gonna send them to college and they're gonna help run our big empire. And by the way, if you ever wanna see your kids again, you better keep paying your taxes, all right? So that's what happened. He was one of those young men. Well, they don't pay their taxes. And in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, comes and destroys Jerusalem and he destroys the temple in Jerusalem. It's called the first temple, the one that Solomon built. 
Well, Daniel remains there. And as was prophesied, the Babylonians themselves get conquered by the Persian people. Think Babylonians, think Iraq, and Persians think Iran. They are ethnically different groups of people. They fought each other in the last century, they fought each other in the seventh century BC. So the Persians conquer the Babylonians and Daniel is now an old man, not a young man anymore, but when the Persians conquer Babylon, he's an old man. And in the first year of the Persian uh, rule, he has a vision about his people. I'm just gonna show you a little piece. If you have questions, you can ask, because I wanna try and frame this up and, and make this understandable. So in Daniel chapter nine, Daniel gets this vision, and let's read this, and we're gonna make some sense out of it, and I'll show you how it fits where we are. He says to Daniel, know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC. So 50 years later, he's getting this. So the, the, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which hasn't happened at the time Daniel gets this, but we know when that happened, until the anointed one, so there's a time period there, from the time of the decree until the anointed one. That word is Moshiach, Messiah. It, it means anointed one. And so you have to figure out well, is that talking about the Messiah or is that just a general word talking about the anointed one? Think Messiah. So from the time of the, of the decree to restore Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. All right, so what in the world is this talking about? So think of a seven as a week. It's seven days. And so you've got seven weeks, 49 days, and you have 62 weeks of days. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come, now we've got a new person entering this. There's gonna be some ruler coming. He will destroy the city Jerusalem and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood and war will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many people for one seven, a week. In the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, that's, that's hard to understand, but here are just a few keys. First of all, we have three, three major events. You have a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, you have the coming of the Messiah, and then after the Messiah is somehow cut off, you have a ruler, an evil ruler, who is going to defile the temple of God. So that's your three players. The sevens, and you'll see this in other apocalyptic literature. This idea comes from Ezekiel, another Old Testament prophet. But I want you to think of a seven days in a week being seven years. A day is a year. And so seven sevens, 
would be seven weeks, 49 days. Think prophetically, that's 49 years. And I'm gonna give you a chart that I hope will help make sense of this. There's a little argument about some of these dates. There's argument about everything, but I wanna make this pretty simple. So you got, you got seven sevens, 62 sevens, and one final seven. And here's the traditional way this is understood. So in 457 BC, now remember Daniel is before that. But finally in 457 BC, Artaxerxes, the king of the Persians, gives to Ezra, Ezra is a book in the Old Testament and he's a priest, gives him a decree and says you can go back and build Jerusalem. Ah, that's what Daniel was talking about from the date of that decree. You've got seven sevens, seven weeks of years, so you've got seven years here and 62. If you just multiply that out, that's 483 years. So 69 times seven, 483 years. So it says, so from the time of the decree until the time that the anointed one shows up is 483 years. Well, fast forward 483 years and you get to about 27 AD, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Three and a half years later, I mean, it's hard to be precise, but three years and a little bit, Jesus is, quote, cut off. He is crucified. And so the Messiah is gone. I mean, he's raised from the dead, but the Messiah is gone. So the traditional understanding of that first 69 weeks 483 years is, oh, that's talking about from the time that we rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes is gonna be 483 years, and it works out pretty well. Then, that last week, that last seven years is different. And so the understanding then is we're here, we're in the church age, and that's all the way from the first coming to the second coming. But what about that last set of seven, that last seven years, that's typically understood to be the time period that we are in in a study of Revelation. Future says, and this is why, one of the reasons you think of the tribulation being seven years. From chapter four to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, you say all of that tribulation is gonna happen in the future in a seven year period. Why seven year period? because it ties into this prophecy. Does that make sense? And that seven year period is divided into two because it says that the ruler that's going to come, spoiler alert, if you're a futurist, that's the antichrist. And he's gonna show up here in a week or so and cause all kinds of havoc. And so this is split into two pieces of three and a half years each. And for three and a half years, he's gonna look like a good guy and he's gonna rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But in the middle of that time, he's gonna turn on them and he's gonna defile the temple and he's gonna persecute God's people and live up to his name, the Antichrist. Okay, so that's in a nutshell, and I'm painting with a really broad brush, but that in a nutshell is a prophecy from Daniel 500 years before the time of Jesus and this is when people think it is coming true. In the book of Revelation, chapters four through 19, that this seven year period is the tribulation. Now I'm gonna show you a chart and I'm just gonna focus in that last seven years. So first half, 1260 days, that's three and a half years. Second half, 
We are right here in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. So according to that prophecy, the seven years of the tribulation, I'm speaking like a futurist now, the seven years in the future is in the first three and a half years, you have the seven seals and all that bad stuff happening, and you have the seven trumpets and all that bad stuff happening. Then you have chapters 11, 12, and 13, which are kind of a pause, and they talk about different things. And then you're gonna finish off with the seven bowls in the last three and a half years, which is called the Great Tribulation because things get even worse in the second half. Okay, I realize that's kind of a lot, especially if you're not used to it, but I want you to, for those of you that are familiar with the prophecy in Daniel, this is how it's typically understood from a futurist point of view, is that Daniel was looking forward to the book of Revelation and talking about what's gonna happen in the end time. And that last seven years is gonna be very eventful. I wanted to tell you this because that breaking up of that seven years into three and a half and three and a half is gonna show up in our text uh, in chapter 11. And so from a futurist point of view, this is talking about the end time, okay? So ask questions about that if that's not clear. So now I wanna to go to chapter 11 and I think it's gonna make more sense once we get there. So, chapter 11. After the seven seals, after the seven trumpets, now all of a sudden something different happens. We don't start pouring out the bowls of wrath. All of a sudden John said, I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, go measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So a couple of things here. 1,260 days is divided by 30, which is the Jewish calendar. That's 42 months, which is three and one half years which is, you're also gonna see this, so I'll just tell you now, a time times and half a time. So that's one times is two and one half, which is three and a half. So all these are ways that you're gonna see in the book of Revelation and in Old Testament prophecy of talking about a period of three and a half years. So that's why in the seven, you're gonna see it broken into two, three and a half year periods. So what is this passage saying? It says, John, I want you to go measure the temple of God and the altar because the Gentiles are gonna trample on this city for three and a half years. So first, let me remind you what, what this is referring to. So if you're a futurist, you believe that the temple in Jerusalem, where there's two mosques sitting there right now, that at the end times, they're gonna rebuild the temple that looks like this. This is the temple of Herod the Great, second temple, that that's gonna get rebuilt on the Temple Mount. And they're really gonna start, Jews are gonna start worshiping there again. And the Antichrist is gonna come and be their friend, but he's not their friend. And he turns on them and he's going to persecute God's people for 42 months, three and a half years. 
Okay, that's a futurist understanding. And John is told, what's the deal about measuring it? Well, I wanna remind you of what this temple looks like. This is a great model of the temple in the, in the time of Jesus. And this is, by the way, massive, massive temple mount. So he says, I want you to measure the temple. You see the big temple building and the altar right here in this court is an altar for sacrificing animals right before you went into the temple, but not the courtyard outside the temple. You can see in this picture a little wall running along here and a wall running there. It's very small in the picture, but that's a wall. No Gentile was allowed in that wall inside this area. So between these red lines I've drawn, that's the temple area. And that's what John is told to measure. Why is he told to measure that? In Jewish times, only Jews could go in there. So what's he effectively saying? Measure God's people. Now, if you think about a symbolic view, you would say, this is not the temple, this is the church. This is representative of God's people. And so what God is doing is he's saying, look, all this cataclysmic stuff's happening, but I want you to go mark out my people. Remember earlier in the book, God paused everything and he said, go seal all of my people. This is God saying, don't, don't worry, all the bad things that are happening, I know where my people are. So measuring the temple is often understood as God sealing his people, the church, in a time of tribulation. Out here, this is this area and this area, and these are huge. Those are called the court of the Gentiles. In Jesus' time, Gentiles could come and pray. Remember, that's where the tables were set up, that Jesus came in and said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Even the Gentiles can come in here and pray. And you guys are out here selling stuff. And he turns over the tables. That happened out in the court of the Gentiles. And so what this is saying is, is during this tribulation period, those who are opposed to God, the Gentiles, the nations, are going to trample on God's people. There's gonna be tremendous persecution of God's people. If you're a futurist, you think that's, pro that's the Jews. If you're not a futurist, you think that that is the church, that's believers, are gonna be persecuted. And remember, this is written to believers who were, were being persecuted in the first century. So the idea of measuring the temple is the idea of God saying, I know my people, and for a certain period of time, is it a literal three and a half years? Well, if you're a futurist, you'd say literally three and a half years. If you're symbolic, you'd say for a set certain amount of time, God's people will be persecuted, but not forever, okay? And so then what happens? He said, measure that. He said, because during that time, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. So for three and a half years, during this persecution, I've got two witnesses that are gonna come speak the word to the world. So they are gonna be clothed in sackcloth. These two are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power 
to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. How long will it not rain? Three and a half years. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So first question comes here is we kind of know when this is happening. If you're a futurist, it's happening during the three and a half years in that seven year period when the Antichrist and the, the people of the earth are persecuting God's people. If you see it symbolically, this is anytime, anywhere. God's people have been persecuted. Today in China or North Korea, this is talking about that time period. And so you would see these witnesses as the church being willing to preach the gospel even in times of persecution. But if you're a futurist, you'd say no, it's actually two real people who are going to show up during the end time, that seven year period, and they're gonna preach during that time. So who are these two witnesses? Well, you get really good clues as to who they are. So historically speaking, from the Old Testament, who is the prophet that's famous for going to King Ahab and saying, it is not gonna rain until my God says it's gonna rain. And for three and a half years, it did not rain. And then he comes back to Ahab and he says, I wanna have a big old throwdown with the prophets of Baal. Okay, this is Elijah. And this is coming from the book of 1 Kings. And when you see this, you go, that's that story. So you're telling me one of these two witnesses is Elijah or somebody like an Elijah. The other one has the power to turn water into blood. Who does that sound like? Think of Moses, right? Another great figure from the past who went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He says, I'm not gonna let your people go. And he says, okay, I'm gonna turn the Nile into blood. And so he does. And so you get Moses and Elijah are clear Old Testament references as to who these witnesses are gonna be. Well, now that's really interesting because the Jews divided the scriptures into basically the law and the prophets. Like Jesus will say, when you read the law and the prophets, what does that mean? The Old Testament, the word of God. Moses is the lawgiver who gave the Torah and Elijah is one of the greatest of the prophets. It's also curious because of something that happens in Jesus' time. In Matthew chapter 17, there's this curious incident that happens. It's called the transfiguration. So during Jesus' ministry, it says Jesus took Peter and James and John and he led them up onto a mountain, just the four of them. And Jesus was transfigured, simply meaning you, they, be, they saw him more as he truly is, not just a human being, but also as God. He was transfigured and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This sounds a lot like the book of Revelation, a description of who Jesus is, his awesome uh, divinity. And behold, there appeared also Moses and Elijah talking to him. If you've ever wondered, you Bible scholars, what were they talking to him about? Revelation chapter 11. Guarantee you. It's like, fellas, I'm going to need you to show up in chapter 11, all right? And you're going to preach the word. 
But the idea here, the symbolism is just overwhelming. Moses guided God's people out of slavery. Elijah came to turn God's people back to God from the idols that they had been worshiping. And so here come these two witnesses who literally are described as being Moses and Elijah, and what are they gonna do? They're gonna come amidst huge persecution and they're gonna go preach the truth of God. What's the fire that comes out of their mouth? The truth of God that judges the world. God's gospel is the judge of the world. In other words, when people stand before Christ at judgment day, what's the standard by which they're gonna be judged? The word of God. And so they're gonna go preach the truth of God. Preach repentance, that you can turn to God or you can stay with your idols and you'll be judged whichever way you do it. And so these two witnesses, if you're a futurist, you say these are two literal people. Don't necessarily think it's Moses come back to life and Elijah come back to life, but they're Moses and Elijah figure. And they're two real people who are gonna come preach during that time. If you see it more symbolically, you would say, this is the church in any generation boldly speaking the gospel, even when people were trying to kill them. I told you I would tell you the historicist view. So symbolic says it's just the church of any time. Future says it's two guys in the future. Here's the key to the historicist understanding. If you're a historicist, the bad guys are always the Catholics. All right, so in a historicist, not Catholic people, the Catholic institution, historicists think the 1,260 days are 1,260 years, and it literally represents the time from that the Catholic Church ruled religion. All the way up to the Protestant Reformation, all the way from about three or 400 AD, that the Catholic structure ruled Christianity. And the witnesses are the martyrs, the reformers, who protested, you know, the Martin Luthers of the world, who protested against the Catholic Church, and many of them were killed uh, for, for speaking uh, against the Catholic Church. So historicists, the bad guys usually are, are the Catholic institution. And so the anti, uh, spoiler alert, the Antichrist is gonna be the Pope. All right, so for the historicists. So they really see the, the bad influence, the corrupting influence on Christianity being the Catholic institutional church, not an individual Catholic person, but that's how the historicist view looks at it. So they don't see the 1,260 days as three and a half years in the end time. They see it as 1,260 years that the Catholic Church dominated Christianity and led a lot of people astray. Make sense? So those are different views. Symbolic, church of all time. Historicists, Catholics. Futurists, yet to happen, and it's gonna be two real people. So what are these what's gonna happen with these two witnesses. When they have finished their testimony, and that's interesting because they're about to get killed. They don't get killed when the beast decides to kill them. They get killed when God says their testimony is complete. I mean, all through this, I want you to remember, you don't see Satan driving this train. You do not see Satan pulling the strings. Oh, he's doing his best. But every time you read this, it's like, well, then the beast came and killed him. No, 
when God said their testimony was finished, he allowed this to happen. Very in, just watch and see because the sovereignty of God is all through the book of Revelation. When they finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, the abyss, we already met this guy and uh, earlier in the book, not a good character. He's the one that brought all the demons out of the abyss and attacked the world. It was in our trumpets. He said, so he will conquer them and kill the two witnesses and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. You see three and a half showing up so many times. If, you're, if you believe in a symbolic point of view, you go, man, three and a half is all over this thing. That's gotta be symbolic of something. And what would it be symbolic of? Typically a short fixed period of time that something bad is gonna happen but it cannot go any longer. In other words, God's in control and he's allowed this to happen for a period of time. So for three and a half days, some from the counties, peoples, tribes, languages, and nations, four adjectives, what does that mean? Four is the number of created order. The whole world is going to gaze at their dead bodies, refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. How have they been a torment to people that dwell on the earth? They've been a torment by telling the truth. And if you think about it, even in our culture today, you see more and more the idea that Christians are seeing a lot of hostility from secular culture for what? for what you believe. Is it because you're out there shooting people and killing people? And No, that's not. I mean, that would probably be justified. The hostility towards Christians is your message is hateful to us. That's what this is talking about. They've tormented the world by telling the truth and the world killed them for it. And that is a sign, if your symbolic point of view, you'd say, yep, that's the church through all of the ages. The, the world will not accept, not the whole world will not accept the truth. And just like they crucified Jesus for speaking the truth, they will kill Christians for speaking the truth. So this is uh, over and over. Futurist says these are two real people and they get killed by a real ruler in the future. Let's go on. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and this is the understatement of the century, great fear fell on everybody who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of the heavens. So, we're in this interlude, kind of a little interlude right in the middle of the tribulation if you're a futurist and you've had these two witnesses come and it's almost as though God's giving the world another chance. It's like, look, you've seen some of the judgment. I mean, if you get anything out of this lesson, probably one of the big things is the forbearance and the great love of God, even for his enemies. Because he says, look, I'm gonna send these two witnesses or that's if you're a futurist. If you're symbolic view, you'd say, I've got my Christians out there in the world 
telling you this, even when you're trying to kill them, they're still love you enough to tell you the truth and give you a way to repent and find your way back to God, that God so loved the world that he even gave his two witnesses and let them be killed by the world. And so you see the incredible love of God for people that are lost. Now, will they be judged if they don't accept Christ? Yeah, and that judgment has begun. But God, there's always the opportunity to turn and repent. Second lesson is this. The beast could kill their bodies. The beast was not in control of their destiny. And that's another powerful lesson that runs all through the Bible. And it's the great assurance. How could these people go out and preach knowing that they were gonna get killed? How could all those Christians in John's time remain and not deny Christ knowing that they were gonna get killed if they did? Hundreds of thousands of Christians were killed just for failing to renounce Christ. How could you do that? Because they knew that the beast the government, the powers, the persecutors have power over your body and nothing else. Remember Jesus saying this, he said, do not fear those who have the power to kill your body and then can do nothing else to you. If you're gonna fear anyone, fear the one who has control over your soul, fear God. And so what you see here very graphically is the world's rejoicing like we defeated them and it's like, oops, they're alive. They're going up to heaven. And that's a real comfort. And it was a comfort to Christians is like, all the world can do is kill my body. It can't touch my soul. My soul is safe in the hands of Jesus Christ. That is a powerful lesson. And you saw it with Jesus. Now you're gonna see it with the witnesses. You've seen it with the church throughout time. So regardless, I'm gonna try and tell you the different points of view, but regardless of what point of view, everybody knows that's true. That's one of the foundational truths of the book of Revelation. So that's to some point, it doesn't matter whether you're a futurist or symbolic or historicist, everybody agrees with that, is that the primary lesson here is that God is the one who has control of your destiny, not the world. Even though sometimes I know it feels like the world is in control. Question? Uh, several questions about um different interpretations. If garments are symbolic, what does dressed in sackcloth mean? Yes, great question. I skipped right over that. So these two witnesses are dressed in sackcloth. Sackcloth throughout the Old Testament and through even the time of Jesus, the practice was sackcloth was mourning clothes, meaning you were sad, you were in mourning. And so they come in mourning because of the judgments that have been, remember we're halfway through and about like a third of mankind has been killed. And the sun has gone dark for a third of the time. And I mean, it's, it's not good times, right? I mean, you've already had half of the tribulation happen and things are really unsettled in the world and things are going south really fast. And so they come, but they come mourning, the judgment of God is coming and it's like repent. And so the sackcloth is a gesture of woe to the world. In fact, this whole section is called the second woe. So they come sadly like saying, you need to turn around or this is gonna be your funeral. 
What do you think about the idea that Elijah and Enoch are the two witnesses since they never died? Yes, that is a good question. I left that out just because you can't talk about everything, but that's really good because they're the majority, I would say the majority of commentators understand this symbology as Moses and Elijah because of the clarity of, of that. However, some in the early church, uh, this, that, that idea goes way back in history. Some in the early church thought it was Elijah and Enoch because they're the two that did not die. Uh, personal opinion, the symbology seems so clear to be Moses and Elijah, but that's an old idea that's been around a long time. So that's a very good point, whoever asked that. What are the locusts on the fifth trumpet? So the locusts on the fifth trumpet, this is a throwback question. Um, they are, okay, so let me just bring it down to the two, two big ideas. Demons, you remember they got the stinger in the tail and, you know, torment people kind of a thing. So they're demons coming out of the abyss. Or some futurists think that, I showed you that picture of an attack helicopter, is that that, they are instruments of war. Because some futurists think that this is supernatural. There are gonna be demons running around doing nasty stuff, right? And there really are gonna be stars falling out of heaven and all that. I'm fine with that. That's a very legitimate way to understand this if you're a futurist. But there's another camp of futurists that say, yeah, but actually what I think it's gonna be is nuclear war. And I think those locusts are more like helicopters firing missiles, nuclear missiles and things. So one of the ways to understand it is supernatural, demonic. Another way is, no, maybe that's describing weapons of war. So those are probably the two views of what those locusts are. Okay. Um, Christ fulfilled the old covenant, which included the sacrifices at the temple. Right. So what are the possible explanations of the sacrifice being reinstated as prophesied in Daniel? It says he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Yeah, so this gets a little complicated. Uh, I'll give you a short version now and I'll give you a longer version when we get there. So. Let's just, let's just sit in the futures camp for a minute, all right? It's gonna be seven year tribulation in the future and all these things are literally gonna come about in that seven years. So there are two big camps of futurists and one camp sees these things happening largely to uh, most futurists think the church has been raptured, so we're gone. But more people become Christians during the tribulation. And the 144,000 are actually Jewish people that accept Christ and become evangelists during that time. And so there are more Christians. And so the temple uh, in that scenario, they, they, would pro they would not see the sacrifices as, uh, as literal sacrifices because there is no need for sacrifice since Jesus has come. There's another camp and I'm not gonna do them justice in these remarks, so pardon me, I'll do it more justice later on, called dispensational futurists. One of the elements of that kind of futurist view is that it's not just the Christians that's happening, there's two tracks going. You've got Christians and they get raptured, 
But God's not through with the Jews. And God still has plans for the Jewish people in the tribulation as well. And that there will be a temple and there will be sacrifices and it will be Jewish people doing it. And he has a plan. And I realize that's kind of sketchy, but that's, that passage leads some people to believe that, wait a minute, maybe God's also working with Jews as well as with Christians. That's imperfect. I'll, I'll do that a lot more justice when we get to it. But yes, that's a very good question. Would Christians see any reason to do animal sacrifices? No, not at all. That completely ended with the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus being offered. So good questions. Yeah, this gets really detailed. And I'm trying to not get too detailed, but if you have questions, just send them in and we'll, we'll take them on in the podcast, if not here, but basically what I want you to see is when are we? We're in a little interlude three and a half years into the tribulation if you're a futurist. If you're symbolic, we're just living life, right? This is just the whole time happening over and over again. If you're historicist, it's Catholic Church caused all the problems. All right, so we'll, that's the basic views of, of what's happening here. But we're basically halfway through the tribulation and God is giving the world another chance. And in the next two chapters, more things are going to happen that set up the great tribulation. If you thought the first three and a half years was bad, wait till you see the second three and a half years. And so we're in this little interlude in the middle. So what happens at the end of chapter 11? Well, we haven't blown the seventh trumpet yet. If you've noticed, when you have six seals that are open and then you get a little interlude, and the seventh seal gets opened. Well, we had six trumpets and we've had a little interlude with the two witnesses and the whole idea of, you know, we're gonna build, rebuild the temple and all of this and the witnesses going back up to heaven. We had a little interlude, now it's time to blow the seventh trumpet. And so here's what happens at the end of chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This is real end of the world language. Like you could probably stop the book of Revelation here and it would be fine. You'd say, well, there we go. That's all she wrote. This is the end of the world. So listen to it as you, as you read it, as I read it to you. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones, back to chapter four, before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you have now begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants. Oh, that time has come. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail, which are all symbolic of judgment. This sounds like, all right, we had all these cataclysmic, we've judged the earth with these seven trumpets. I gave everybody a last chance with the two witnesses and now we're done. Judging the world and God reigns forever with his saints. Literally, this is why symbolic view looks at this and says, this is the same story told three times. The seven trumpets are the whole story. 
of God executing his judgment on the earth, the Antichrist fighting against the two witnesses, but God resurrecting them, and then God begins to reign and all of his enemies are destroyed and judged. That's seven trumpets. If you go back, you'll see something real similar at the end of the seven seals. And so I, I'm not trying to persuade you of this, I just want you to see when you get this kind of language, the symbolic view says, maybe this isn't chronologically linear. Maybe it's the same thing being told three times over. But good futurists would say, tisk tisk, you're too naive. This is linear, this is gonna continue to happen. We still have you know, 11 more chapters to go. This movie is not over yet. So you can kind of see from this language why you might have a disagreement. And I want you to understand the nature of the disagreement. These are not Christians and non-Christians disagreeing. These are Christians saying, well, it's, you could read this book a little bit differently. What's it trying to say to us? But at the end of the day, everybody agrees with what it's trying to say. And that is that God is sovereign and God is ruling what's happening. That there really is evil in the world. The Antichrist, whom you'll meet soon, is coming and he is trying to destroy God's people. And you know what? He's gonna kill a lot of God's people. And you know what? They're not dead forever because God holds your soul and you will be raised from the dead and you will live forever. Everybody agrees with that. And that's kind of the fundamental idea. I hope when you read this, you can see why this revelation was given when it was. If you assume, like I'm gonna assume in this class, that this revelation came to John in say 95 AD, right before 200 plus years of brutal persecution of the church. It is a gracious thing for God to say, you don't know what's about to happen, but I do, and I'm gonna describe it to you. And I wanna reassure you that I'm in charge, not Caesar, not any of the earthly powers. And some of you are gonna die, but if, remember what Jesus said to Mary and Martha? He says, if you believe in me, you will never die. In other words, your soul will live forever. I think that it's, it's God's grace to tell his people that before they were entering, honestly, 2,000 years of persecution, but we know that next 200 was absolutely brutal. And so you, you have this revelation when, you, when it was given so that we can be assured that whatever it is we're going through, whether it's the government persecuting us, whether it's our workplace, whether it's the trials and difficulties of life, everything that Satan would like to do to keep you from being faithful uh, to God. He'll do it through temptation, if that works, the carrot. He'll also do it through hardship, the stick. Anything he can do to get you to turn away from God. And the assurance of the book of Revelation is that no matter what happens to you, you are safe in God's hand and you will be there for eternity. This is a book about the trials in your life and staying faithful through the trials in your life. It's for all of the detail and all the minutia and all the arguing about Revelation, that's fundamentally what this book is about. And so you get to the end of each one of these sets of seven and you see this glorious ending. And after all the trouble we just saw, now you realize who, when the dust clears, who's still left? Well, it isn't the beast and it isn't the antichrist and it isn't the false prophet. 
It's God and his saints are the ones that are left standing at the end. And that's the beauty of the message, okay? So we're gonna still be in the interlude and there's some more really weird stuff that's about to happen. So next time, in chapter 12, you're gonna meet a woman and a dragon and Satan is going to instigate a war in heaven. And one of the interesting questions is, when in the world is this happening? And another interesting question is, if Satan got cast out of heaven, spoiler alert, he loses. And so if Satan gets cast out of heaven, does that mean he's running around Oklahoma City right now? I'll let you know next week, but in the meantime, be on the lookout.